and welcome to Discuss, a podcast which tries to encourage open and honest conversation around various topics and social issues. This podcast is hosted by me, Hayley Rose Dean. Each week, I'll be inviting a guest onto my podcast to have a discussion around a different topic that's relevant and relatable in the world today. If you do enjoy listening, then I'd really appreciate some encouragement and feedback in the form of rating and reviewing this episode, which takes just a few minutes of your time. You can subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes, and it also really helps others to find the podcast. Now, let's get on with the episode. Hi, everyone. I hope you're all having a good week. On today's episode, I talk to Sophie Whitehead, who works for Sexplain, a UK-based organisation which aims to provide comprehensive and inclusive sex and relationships education to young people. They facilitate workshops on SRE, tackling important social issues and stigmas that take place largely in educational settings. Sexplain pride themselves on having a feminist and intersectional approach, and we'll talk about what that means and the amazing work that they do in this episode. If, like me, you think that your own experience of SRE was, uh, well, pretty crap, then this episode will be of huge interest to learn about the progression of SRE thanks to organisations like Sexplain. And we cover a huge range of topics such as the inclusivity of the LGBTQ community in SRE, teaching consent, discussing the impacts of porn on young people and just so much more. Just for reference, SRE is short for Sex and Relationships Education, and you'll hear us use it a lot through the episode. Hey, Sophie, and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to someone from Sexplain. I'm a huge advocate of what you guys do, and I feel like there's so much that I want to try and cram into this hour. (laughs) How are you doing today? Yeah, okay, good. It's pretty grey outside, which is a shame, but it's also Friday, so... I know yeah we are recording this on a Friday which is good but it's not yeah it's not the nicest weather for a Friday but it's cool so Sophie something that I do just as a bit of an icebreaker to get things going with the podcast is I ask people to recommend something to read something to watch and something to listen to um do you have these three things what would you recommend yes I do um so for the reading recommendation um I recently read Heart of the Race which is about Black Women's Lives in Britain. Um, it's written by three different people, Beverly Bryan, Stella Dadzi, and Suzanne Scaife. Um, it was written in the 80s originally, but I think it was reissued a couple of years ago with a new introduction and stuff. And it's basically about, um, yeah, the experiences of those three women and a lot of other black women who they spoke to in the context of sort of health, education, employment, and so on. Um, And I found it really interesting because I think, especially in relation to the work that we do at Sexplain and sexual health and stuff, we sometimes think about the history of reproductive rights in quite kind of white-centric terms, I guess. And that book talks about how, for a lot of Black women, at at that point, there were were kind of, I guess a bit, I guess there was a bit of a kind of disconnect between the activism that a lot of white feminists were doing around reproductive rights to gain reproductive rights and their experiences as black women where they felt like they had the reverse experience where they were being kind of encouraged to go through abortion and felt like there were kind of 
unnecessary concerns and controls on their reproductive rights in the opposite direction. Um, so yeah, I think that just adds a bit more context to the history of reproductive rights in a kind of um, racialized and racist perspective, which I guess is more kind of, it's, it's generally important to know, but also in the context of Black Lives Matter and um, everything else that's happening at the moment, I think it's just kind of, yeah, an interesting angle on our work specifically. Yeah, that sounds um, so interesting. And there's also a lot of things happening, unfortunately, particularly in America with like the rolling back of abortion rights or reproductive health rights, which is, yeah, sounds like a really relevant read. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And then my watch recommendation, which I've not seen all of yet because there are only four out of, I think, 12 episodes that have been released so far, but it's I May Destroy You, which is um, a new show on BBC by Michaela Cole, which kind of centres around an experience of sexual assault. Um, and as, as the episodes unfold, there are different narratives around sexual assault, which I imagine will become kind of interconnected in some way. But it's just amazingly written, so well acted, so well cast. Like the whole thing is just brilliant. Um, I've yeah, also been watching this, so I'm going to say, yeah, it is literally one of the best pieces of TV. I think it's my favourite thing on TV that I've watched since lockdown started. I feel like I've been waiting for something Definitely. this good to turn up on TV. It's really, really well good. And the script is so good. Yeah. Yeah, it's excellent. So yeah, that's my read and watch. And then my last one to listen to is um, Sinead Burke's episode on Desert Island Discs, which my colleague Gayathri recommended to us a few weeks ago. Um, Sinead Burke was, um, well, I don't think she teaches anymore, but she was a primary school teacher in Ireland and is now um, a kind of activist and works within fashion to um, encourage more diversity um, she identifies as a little person and kind of does a lot of advocacy work around um, different, I guess, yeah, just encouraging different people's bodies and different voices being platformed within fashion and more broadly. And she's had a really interesting life and does loads of amazing work and just seems like a really great person and is fun to listen to. Um, and I think is really aligned with Sex Explains values as well. So yeah, yeah, she does. Oh, thanks for those. Yeah, I agree. I love Sinead, but I've not listened to her Desert Island Disc, but she's the sort of person that if I hear her on a podcast, I want to listen because I know she's just so great. She has so much great stuff to say. And mm -hmm. actually, yeah, she does talk a lot about things that you cover and to explain, like inclusivity. And um, obviously, like you said, she identifies as a little person. So she talks a lot about um, inclusivity of people who aren't able-bodied and yeah she's brilliant oh thanks for those recommendations so they're all really good and really thorough <laughs> <laughs> um so let's talk about sexplain and just to start with for people that perhaps don't know what sexplain is could you just explain what you do as a company and then what your role is within the company yeah sure so sexplain is a non-profit we work in sex and relationships education um so we work predominantly with secondary schools um we are totally kind of comprehensive and inclusive and research driven in our approach um we have a sort of sex positive approach to sex education um we also do university workshops and some teacher training and we've done some work on teacher training courses as well like PGC programs um, so yeah it's quite a broad remit but it's 
basically anything to do with sex and relationships education um, from a kind of comprehensive and inclusive perspective. Um, and my role within that is research and practice lead. So I do a lot of school workshops. We're a fairly um, kind of modest sized organization. There's maybe about 10 of us, including the facilitators um, who work part time. So my role is sometimes being in school, obviously not during lockdown, but also doing research projects where we work with different academic partners to learn more about young people's experiences basically and make sure that what we're doing is accurate and relevant to the people who we're trying to educate. I discovered you guys maybe about a year ago and I just was thinking when I first discovered you were I listened to actually another podcast that someone from Sex Bane was on and I was like where were you when I why was this not around when I was younger because my SRE was sorely lacking um and I wondered if we could just talk about why what you do is important in comparison to what the sort of mandatory SRE that schools have to provide is and how what you do is specifically different and like much more of an expansion than what is sort of standard practice in schools. Yeah, sure. It's, it's funny that you say that you thought about your own experience because I feel like everyone who we speak to who's kind of of a certain age, even people who are at school age now, um, say similar things about either sex education that they had being non-existent or completely lacking or um, just not relevant to their own lives. So yeah, I think it's definitely something that a lot of people relate to. Um, yeah, in terms of the work that we do, I think obviously kind of historically and presently, a lot of sex education has been rooted in sort of a health agenda and around kind of... Um, sexually transmitted infection and so on which is still something that's obviously important to address and we do we do that within our sexual health workshops but I think it's also part of a much bigger picture around sort of physical and mental health well-being and also just kind of social justice which is probably the part of our work that is maybe less rooted in the mandated curriculum around sex education so making sure that everything we do is kind of centered around social justice advocacy and inclusivity um, and sex positivity is, is really important. I think just so that all young people can feel like they're recognized in their education and feel like they're empowered as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's funny because um, you can't help, I think, but look back at your experience. And when I think about sex education, when I was at school, I feel like it was more of a biology lesson. They literally taught us the most basic bare bones of how to physically have um, heterosexual penis and vagina sex. And that was it. And then it was the focus was on how to one how a baby is made to so how to get pregnant but then also because you're teenagers how not to get pregnant and how not to get an STI and that was it like no one talked to me about the fact that sex can be fun like no one talked about pleasure no one talked about um the different ways to have sex um even just you know the the hetero narratives that I was sold were literally penis and vagina sex man will climax sex finishes and so I love what you guys do because you talk about so much more than that and I think it's so important and I'm interested to know what the response is like when you go into a school because I remember how 
mortified and embarrassed we were um, when like the teacher would sort of stand and open a condom and it was very segregated. Like we weren't with the boys. Like so the girls were in one room, the boys were in another room. And I'm wondering what the response is like for sex playing when you go and you talk about stuff and what are the students like? Obviously it'll vary because I know you teach a broad age, age range. Yeah. 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 It definitely varies, but I think sex is always kind of an embarrassing, awkward topic to talk about with young people because because they find it awkward because it's not something that's a normalized thing in conversation mm-hmm. and like we we kind of appreciate that and always say at the start like it's okay to have a giggle it's okay to feel awkward kind of thing that's fine and normal um but I think we usually see as the day goes on a kind of dissipating in that awkwardness and a bit more openness and kind of willingness to ask questions and to I guess interrogate some of the things that we and the young people we we speak to have been fed as being like the normal narrative around sex like you said around kind of fear-based ideas that associate sex education just with pregnancy prevention and STI mm-hmm. prevention and um, those kind of heteronormative ideas as well and as it tends to be the case that like the first session might be a bit awkward and a bit sleepy and then as the day goes on they tend to get a bit more kind of engaged and we've had some really sort of really sincere heartfelt positive reactions from students as well like a couple of months before lockdown I was in a school um, and I'd been doing workshops all day around identity and gender and sexuality Um, and it was a workshop that was just before lunchtime at the school and a couple of the students stayed behind at the end and were like thanks so much for talking about this like it's not something that we talk about in school usually and it means a lot that someone's kind of said these things out loud and validated these things I don't think that was their phrasing exactly but you know something along those lines um so yeah broadly a bit awkward and giggly in some cases but it tends to be quite positive overall yeah you have amazing testimonials on your website as well from young people and I think the reason I just thought I wish you could have come and been around when when I was younger is that it would have clarified so much for me because I feel like I didn't really learn about sex even when I first started having sex as a teenager I don't think I really learned about sex until I was in my 20s because there was still so much that I didn't know and I think that the conversation around sex has evolved a lot um I mean I'm 28 now but I do see like a big societal change we're starting to talk about sex more um it's not so much of a huge taboo as it used to be we can do podcasts like this which i think is really helpful and beneficial um and one of the things that when i was at school was that uh young people and kids are embarrassed to admit that something might be off from what they've been taught and i remember like and just an experience i had and something that you said then made me think of it that when i first started having sex i honestly thought something was wrong with me because I had a notion in my head from, um, and I've talked about this with um, someone else. I did a podcast episode with an NHS midwife and we talked a lot about being women and vaginas and how we're not taught about pleasure for us and that sort of thing. And I remember thinking I was actually broken because I wasn't enjoying sex. It wasn't painful, but I wasn't having orgasms and I literally thought there was something wrong with my body because I just thought that, you know, I'm, heterosexual so I thought that sort of sex was man woman have sex 
come together and it's amazing and that's it and that wasn't happening so I was like oh my god this isn't happening there's something wrong with me <laughs> and do you find that like those sort of things come up like are the, are the young people more open to talking to you about these things because I'm just thinking I would have never felt like I could have said that when I was sort of 15 this is probably the first time I've said it in a public something that's going to go out to the public anyway do you know what I mean yeah definitely I think there there's not loads of conversation around the kind of personal experience and we tend to we tend to avoid that in class anyway just because it's it's more helpful to talk in the abstract when it's in a big group setting than talk about any kind of individual's personal experience but we always stress about kind of communication in in all aspects of sex and I think that's really important like what you said about kind of people people with vaginas expecting to have penetrative sex and and kind of orgasm immediately seems to be an experience that a lot of people would resonate with um and as it's as you kind of mentioned as well it, it's not it's just not the case like the vast majority of people with vaginas don't orgasm from penetrative sex alone um and we try to address that in class not by speaking about kind of specific forms of sex but more speaking about kind of communication and being able to articulate what does and doesn't feel good and making sure that as a as a person with a partner you encourage that partner to talk about what doesn't does, doesn't sorry doesn't doesn't feel good to them as well and kind of being able to have that dialogue with a person who you're kind of intimate with is really important because even if we kind of reframe it to focus on sort of clitoral pleasure instead um, which is more likely to result in feeling good than just kind of vaginal penetration. It still, it still doesn't kind of get to the crux of the issue, which is that there isn't kind of one rule that applies for everyone in terms of sexual pleasure. Um, yeah, so so communication is key, really. That's the message that we try to try to get across. Yeah, and I think that's completely valid. And I wish that someone had sort of communicated that to me. Um, especially because I think there are so many concerns. Um, obviously then like you're referring to people with vaginas, which is good because I know that's like a really inclusive term to use because not everyone who has a vagina refers to themselves as female. Um, and I do want to come back to talk about that, but I'm just really interested to know um, with regards to girls, like, you know, those who identify as girls who are interested in boys. Um, and I think that there's a patriarchal narrative where girls are supposed to be people pleasers. And so that can be quite damaging, I found, when it came to sex, because, or, you know, um, just sort of experimenting with boys because I valued their pleasure over my own because there's also what comes with it is the um, things like slut shaming. And it was so difficult. I felt to be a teenage girl, I felt like I couldn't win. And mm. is that something that you find that, you know, I'm, I'm using the term girls, you might say it's people with um, vaginas in general, but with girls who identify as straight, as heterosexual girls who are interested in boys, is that something you still find is quite common? Yeah, I think I think there definitely is an element of that. I guess we would see it more what 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 springs to mind when you say that is how the different classroom dynamics play out when we do it in 
mixed groups versus um, girls and boys groups separately. Um, some some schools will choose for us to go in and speak to the boys and girls in separate groups. Some will do it mixed and we kind of leave that up to the school to decide because they know the students and, and how they'll respond better than we do. But in the situations where we speak to mixed groups, in my experience, it tends to be that girls are more reticent in that context than they would be if they were in an all girls context. Um, and I think there are definite downsides to doing it that way as well. Like it, it should be the case that we can have all these conversations in mixed groups and everyone feels like they can have a voice and talk openly. But I think what you said there about girls maybe feeling like they have to be people pleasers and feeling mm -hmm. like they don't necessarily um, have the same kind of, I guess, entitlement to sexual pleasure. Um, I think that comes through in in the way that those conversations play out in the mixed groups versus the all girls groups because they definitely are able to be more more vocal and more honest and candid when there aren't boys in the room I guess. Yeah and I get that because I mean even now as a woman I feel like I'm definitely still more comfortable amongst other girls talking about our experiences rather than if there are boys there because the experience is different and mm. what do you is there one that you think is more beneficial? I know you said it's up to the discretion of the school, but does Sexplain try to encourage the mixed groups or the, you know, segregated groups? Is there a preference? We, as an organisation, we don't take a stance on it, but mm. my, my personal take is that, like, it should, it, it should, in an ideal world, always be mixed groups. And, and I feel the same way about schooling in general, like, like it, it should be mixed. But, I see that in practical terms, like we live in a society where there are certain ways that having those groups mixed can can kind of inhibit some of the students. Like in the example I gave before about girls sometimes being a bit a bit less vocal when they're in a mixed group. Um, so there are benefits to doing it in in those kind of separated groups, and that's why we leave it up to the up to the decision of the school. Really, like it it can be. It can be sometimes detrimental to enforce a mixed group if it's just not right for the group of kids who we're working with. Um, but ideally, they would be mixed all the time because I think these conversations should be able to occur between people of all genders openly. And we can't really aim for kind of equality or equity around these issues until we're at that stage, um, or we can't claim that anyway. Yeah, completely. And it's interesting because I think that when you're mixed and you know you're in these groups and you're hearing I think particularly for boys because a lot of the narrative is around them so like the sort of the sex education I had as we spoke about it sort of centered male pleasure and um you know even though they weren't directly talking to us about pleasure we all know that when a man ejaculates he generally has an orgasm. Like it's the two kind of go hand in hand more often than not. Um, so I think if boys have been around to hear like the female side of it, um, then that would have been really beneficial. And it's really interesting because I was thinking about this um, actually before we came on the call and just conversations that I've had with my boyfriend. And I was thinking about how um, sometime last year, I can't remember what it was, like he basically didn't even know how how girls use tampons he just never it's never entered his head and I know some people might think well he's a boy why should it enter his head and I'm like 
what do you mean? You literally don't know. And I think, I can't remember what the context was of the situation. Maybe he was just like passing me one or I was getting one out of my bag to go to the toilet. I can't remember. Um, and then afterwards he kind of just said like, how do you actually use that? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I think it's yeah. important that they know these things. It's so interesting. I just yeah, couldn't believe absolutely. people didn't know. <laughs> and we find like, we do anatomy workshops um, where we, we talk about period products and periods and stuff and kind of demonstrate how they work. And we bring different samples in and pass them around. And like the students are always fascinated. It's also because we tend to bring in products that, none of them may have seen before even if they menstruate themselves like um mm. moon cups or reusable sanitary pads yeah um but yeah like whether like regardless of whether or not young people menstruate they're still interested in these things they still need to know about these things um and we do we do teach about that regardless of the kind of gender mix of the group whether it's mixed or boys or girls or whatever um, but yeah, I totally agree. Like it's essential learning <laughs> regardless. Yeah. And I just think as well, like I think for, um, for girls, for people with vaginas, like we have, um, stuff rammed down our throats about how, you know, penises work and their experience, but then mm -hmm. it's, it's never very reciprocal. So I just, <laughs> I just was thinking about that, um, this morning and thinking, yeah, it's kind of like, it all comes back to that. People don't get taught to about the other sex. Like it's really important that, boys learn about the things that girls are going to experience and go through especially because like you said there's so many taboos around menstruation that um it sort of destigmatizes it by talking about it whereas if you sort of hide your tampons and your pads and your moon cups away in a cupboard and they're never spoken about in the house and you never talk about it openly um like you said it all comes back to the communication um mm -hmm. and conversation and i think that's so important and it's something that i know you're really big on um and i want to talk about your approach of being intersectional I feel like intersectional is a really big I don't want to call it a buzzword but it's a big word that we hear a lot we hear it around like feminism and um I think there's still probably a lot of people that are sort of confused about what an intersectional approach means and I know it sort of loops into inclusivity so I wondered if you could talk about that because I think it ties in with what we've just been talking about so when we talk about intersectionality in terms of um the work that we do it's basically a recognition that there are different intersecting intersecting axes of a person's identity um, and that might be to do with their gender or their sexuality or their race um, and so on and recognizing that those different axes intersect in different ways and create different forms of experience for different people so i guess it's actually like what i was talking about before with the book recommendation with heart of the race like a black woman's experience is uniquely um that of a black woman and it's to do with their gender and their race and how those two things coalesce um so we try to recognize that there are different facets of a person's identity that will create experiences for them that are unique because of those circumstances that they're in and i guess what we mean by that is that when we talk when we talk about having a feminist approach we recognize that feminism will take different forms and be applied in different ways depending on a person's circumstances so it's not kind of a one rule fits all type approach we try to consider the backgrounds and situations of different people and and how their identities impact the way that they kind of go through life and navigate their circumstances 
Yeah, which I think is so important because that's just another thing that when I was younger, we never would have considered. It was sort of literally male and female heteronormative sex was the only agenda that was on my SRE when I was Mm -hmm. younger. I didn't ever learn about anything else. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who identifies as gay. And he was just saying, um, this is several months ago, how no one taught him anything about gay sex he had absolutely no idea so I know this is something that you're big on with regards to inclusivity and the LGBTQ plus community and I wondered how you incorporate that into your workshops yeah so we do a workshop which is on identity where we talk about um, sexualities and gender identity and we place that within the context of identity more broadly which I guess links back to the intersectionality thing we spoke about a second ago um, so we start off those workshops by thinking about what a person's identity is made up of and lots of different factors and then we try to pull out the gender and sexuality ele- element of that specifically because I think that speaking about gender and sexuality as kind of siloed identity factors can sometimes and can sometimes leave it being a bit one-dimensional and mm. it it sort of erases all of the other aspects of a person's identity if they are LGBT, um, LGBT plus, and that kind of, I guess, sort of can be dehumanizing when it when it means that a person who is within that community is thought of as being that and solely that when obviously humans are made up of like countless different facets and that and sexuality and gender are just a couple of them so in terms of that specific workshop we think about it in the big picture of identity like I said there and then we try to look at the sort of history of discrimination against those communities like we think about we a question that we used to get quite a lot in class was um like why is there no straight pride and why is there no h in the lgbt plus acronym um for heterosexual i was and gonna say did they literally mean h for heterosexual yeah yeah wow. so wow. so we we thought about this a lot and we try to kind of overtly unpick that question in all of those workshops now and think about the fact that sort of pride started off as a riot and it was a riot against discrimination um and I think it's important for people to understand that context of that community um so we do focus on LGBT plus issues in an overt way in in that workshop in the ways that I've just outlined but we also try to make sure that every workshop we do every kind of teaching or training that we do is inclusive of all genders and sexualities just as a baseline like I think that if you just have one workshop or one lesson that's about LGBT plus people and those communities and then everything else is just heteronormative there's no point in doing it in the first place like Mm. you have to make sure that for example um when you're teaching about um sexual health you talk about different types of sex and the different types of um, I guess inverted commas risks that are associated with different types of sex and you make sure that if you're talking about families you talk about different types of families um, and being inclusive across all of those topics so that it doesn't feel like a one-off tokenistic thing where you've ticked a box um, I think that's really important yeah yeah so that that narrative sort of like comes through what you're teaching anyway rather than just oh okay this section's for 
the LGBTQ community, then back yeah, to exactly. your stuff. <laughs> yeah, and that's really important. It's about like practice and language as well. Like I know you said, you mentioned before that I was saying sort of people with vaginas or people mm. with vulvas, which I think is something that is just second nature to me now. But when we do teacher training, sometimes we get teachers who raise that they're kind of concerned that it'll sound clunky or it'll sound forced or whatever. And I, I, I think that it doesn't really matter if the language sounds forced or clunky, like eventually it will get to a point where it doesn't. And it's better to use a clunky phrase and make sure that everyone feels kind of included and recognized than use terminology that maybe doesn't do that. Um, so yeah, I think it's just about sort of being conscious about making sure that everyone is recognized in all of the work that we do and that and, and otherwise we're not doing our job because we're we're not kind of educating everyone who we're seeking to if we if we don't incorporate different identities and different aspects of gender and sexuality yeah definitely I think it's like it, it's essential for people to understand like we said the different intersections and for people to understand that there's not just one way to have sex and that is literally all I was taught when I was younger and um when I first started looking into your work and when I said I had that conversation with my gay friend and I was thinking oh my gosh I wonder who was sat in that classroom with me learning about a type of sex they were never going to be interested in having and how mm -hmm. if I thought it was unhelpful as someone with a vagina who um, is female because I felt like it didn't really speak much to me then imagine how much harder that was for anyone you know who uh, was perhaps you know queer or gender fluid or questioning and thinking I, I don't even know if this is what I want so mm -hmm. I think it's great that you you do that but something I wanted to talk about um, which without making it a negative thing I just think it's really important to talk about that there is some resistance from people about particularly unfortunately LGBTQ um, sex ed being taught and is that something that you have to face with Sexplain? And how do you kind of go about that? Like even how you were talking about the use of language and you refer to people with vaginas and there's sometimes resistance from teachers. And again, it's not necessarily that there's resistance. It's just that um, because they disagree with the term, like you said, it's just sort of having that conversation. But I know that unfortunately there has been, well, there has been literally protests, haven't there? Because people don't want their children to be taught about it. It's really hard. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's a tricky one. It's, it's not something that I've had to personally engage in loads. I think partly because a lot of these issues have been kind of addressed at schools specifically. Mm. And obviously we're an organisation that goes into schools, but we're not based within a school. Um, and also because a lot of them seem to have been targeted at primary education specifically, which mm. we do a tiny bit of, but it's not the largest part of our remit. Most of what we do tends to be secondary school and sixth form and university stuff. Um, that being said, obviously we are a sex ed organization. So like we've engaged with it to some extent. Um, and I think a lot of it is rooted in kind of fear and the unknown and when I used to be a teacher before I worked for Sexplain and, oh, okay. and I always found that like when you had issues around things like this to do with parents, if, if as a teacher or as someone who works within a school, you can call them up and have a one-to-one -one conversation and explain the content that's going to be covered and explain the rationale behind it, then 
the majority of parents tend to get on board and see the value of it for their children, especially when we're talking about it in terms of their sort of physical and mental well-being and that of the other students in the year group. Like they tend to recognise that that's that's necessary and helpful. Um, that's not going to be the case for everyone, obviously. Like I think the people who are kind of actively protesting outside of the school gates um, and using kind of overtly homophobic language mm. um, maybe don't fall into that category. Um, but I guess when it comes down to that point where it's just kind of staunch homophobia, um, the, the only thing that you can really do is kind of rely on the government guidance and the government guidance states that schools have to be LGBT plus inclusive in the sex ed that they deliver. Um, that's kind of questionable in itself within the guidance because I think it's phrased to say in something like LGBT um, plus issues must be taught at an age appropriate stage. Um, right. And we would argue that like if you're deeming LGBT an age appropriate issue then that in itself isn't particularly inclusive suggesting that it's kind of um, only appropriate once you hit a certain age and I think that that also links to issues around the messaging that we get about what's actually taught because I think some people maybe have it in their head that kind of an LGBT plus sex education or relationships education which is what it is at primary school level um, is going to be talking overtly about the mechanisms of um, sex, like regardless of sexuality. And that's not the case. Like it, at primary school level, it's more about like using children's books that have different types of families in them and talking about different family formats and different setups of kind of maybe having two dads and that kind of thing. Like it's, it's, it's very much oriented around kind of relationships and family and acceptance and inclusivity in that in that sense rather than being overtly about sex and again like I said before I think if parents are communicated to about the details of that and about the rationale then in a lot of cases they tend to they tend to accept that that it's useful and that it's an important part of the children's education yeah do you think a lot of it comes back to I think as a society we're uncomfortable talking about sex and mm. we create it makes us cringe we don't like to talk about it the the narrative is changing I can see in my own lifetime and I'm only 28 that it has changed from when I was a child but I actually have had conversations with my mum say about certain things um and that she didn't speak to me about we've had really nice open conversations and she said do you know what like just no one spoke to me about that and I'd have been mortified if my mum had tried to so it's sort of like this big embarrassment around talking about sex and I think that so sometimes for parents hearing that their their children are going to be learning about sex it's like because they're not comfortable talking about themselves it's just like ah I can't imagine them learning all this stuff um, yeah. so do you think that's a lot of it that just in society we just find it difficult to be open and honest when we talk about sex yeah I think so I think that's part of a lot of the kind of uncertainty and and again just like the fear around it and the fear of the unknown especially when I guess sex education for a lot of people who have already been through the school system has been fairly poor at mm, best non-existent yeah. <laughs> at work. Um, and, and I think that experience probably is 
forms a part of people's judgment around what sex education is like as well um which which is something that obviously we're trying to change and we're trying to encourage more candor around sex so that people can have these conversations with family and friends and medical professionals and and so on um but yeah it's definitely a societal issue and i think it it takes time doesn't it to break down those kind of cringe barriers yeah and I just think it all comes back to what you were saying at the beginning about communication and when you don't communicate about something that's how it becomes a taboo and that's how it becomes stigmatized and so by not talking about sex and being embarrassed and cringing and not wanting to have the birds and bees in air quotes conversation it makes it an issue and so therefore you can't kind of like you said break through those barriers and break down a stigma unless you start to talk about it um and I think yeah that's really important yeah I think it's also like with the with the birds and the bees conversation as well I think it's kind of built up as this one conversation that's had with with a child or with children at some point and actually that is a far more daunting task than just normalizing talking about sex and bodies in general so that the conversations can be ongoing like if it's just a one separate like instance of a conversation that that inevitably will be awkward because it's not something that's discussed whereas if it's something that a family or a school or a group of friends talked about on a regular basis it loses that taboo um and we always kind of we always highlight that this taboo isn't only to do with sort of people feeling able to talk freely about sexual pleasure and preferences and so on it's also a safeguarding thing like if young people don't feel like they can name their their vulva or their vagina or the different parts of their body accurately and don't feel like it's okay to talk about those body parts that can mean that they don't feel comfortable saying when something's happened to them which is like obviously a a much bigger issue so we try to really stress that this is as much about that safeguarding side of things as it is about everything else yeah it's so true and I've actually never thought about it like that. How, yeah, you, you did as a kid, you, you knew that one day this big conversation, or this was my experience anyway, I used to dread it. I used to think, oh God, one day I'm going to get sat down. My parents are yeah. going to talk to me about SEX. And I don't, <laughs> and I was so mortified that they would do that. Um, and I can't even really remember. My mum actually, I asked her a couple of weeks ago and she said that she remembers um, having a conversation with me about sex when I was in primary school um, because yeah and she said she and I don't even remember it and she said she remembers because she was like brushing my hair and I was sort of like asking a couple of questions and she tried to sort of talk back but she was also like hating every minute of it that of me being inquisitive (laughs) because it was so awkward but if those conversations are sort of like woven through um just life in general for children then it doesn't become one great big deal of a conversation um yeah definitely And I think that ties back into sort of talking about pleasure as well, because like we said, a lot of the time sex education feels like a biology lesson. That was definitely my experience of it. It didn't, we didn't really talk about sex for on an emotional level, which I know you do, or like sex in relationships. And there was sort of still, I think even when I was at school, which I know it sounds like a long time ago because it was over 10 years ago, but I'm not, I'm I'm not in my thirties even. So I'm still pretty young. you know, I used to just think you don't have sex till you get married. And I used to think that you only had sex to have children. Like when I was in primary school, I literally thought my parents had had sex twice. 
because they had two children. (laughs) That's the sort of thing that I think if you start bringing in that sex is fun and talking about pleasure, and I know that's something that you're really important on um, talking about. And why do you think it is important that we go beyond talking just about sort of like the bare bones of sex and having a baby and it's important to bring up pleasure? Yeah, I I mean, it's important because realistically most people most of the time are having sex for pleasure like they're not having sex exactly. in a lot of places um and also if we stick with that narrative of sex being to an end of reproduction that sticks with that kind of penis and vagina heteronormative narrative which is something that we're really trying to break apart um and yeah i think as well it's it's about kind of autonomy and making sure that all young people know that they're they're allowed to want to experience sexual pleasure and that they're allowed to have conversations about this with people who they might be intimate with um and making sure that that's normalized and made to be an acceptable thing to talk about um Mm. yeah and talking about autonomy sort of brings us into discussions around consent and that is one of the biggest things that i wish someone had talked to me about when I was younger because I think I had no concept really of what giving my consent was and you were just saying you know it's important young people understand that they're allowed to experiment and like different things but also you're you're allowed to say no um Mm. and I know you're big on consent and maybe you could just talk a bit about that and how that's incorporated and why it's so essential that consent is spoken about in RSE. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the autonomy link is vital. It, it does kind of boil down to autonomy and young people being given a framework to understand and recognize their own autonomy, but also that of other people who they might be with. Um, I guess like we talk about the value of teaching about consent, but I think the way that consent is taught about is really important as well. Like they're in, in the last sort of 10 years or whenever there's been a kind of increase in in teaching about consent in schools and in universities. I think at one point there was more of a push on this idea of sort of yes meaning yes and no meaning no, which is true mm. to an extent, but doesn't really <clears throat> doesn't really pick apart the nuance of human interaction in any way. Like in a lot of cases, it won't be a yes or no type interaction. Um, so when we talk about consent, we try to think about sort of verbal ways that someone might communicate. Um, which might be yes but also might be like that feels good or it might be I'm tired which might be a kind of soft no way of saying they don't want to do something and then also think about the non-verbal ways that people communicate which uh, are fairly sort of important to bear in mind as well like if someone isn't reacting or touching you back or maintaining eye contact that might be a sign that they're not that comfortable um and we try to unpick all of those different ways that you might be able to kind of gauge how someone's feeling. Um, I say that because we we do it from a perspective of thinking about getting the consent of a partner rather than showing that you are consenting. Like mm. it's important that we can recognize those signs in someone else that show either they're into it or they're not. Um, and that puts the onus on the other person rather than the person who is supposed to be saying yes or no um and again like we've said throughout this whole conversation like it is just a case of communication so we always talk about kind of if someone is in a situation where 
they've sort of spotted that the other person maybe doesn't feel that comfortable for whatever reason maybe they're not keen to take their clothes off or maybe they've said oh I've got to go soon so maybe another time or anything like that kind of stopping and checking in with that person is is so important and being able to kind of pause and have those conversations about how everybody in the situation is feeling um so so yeah I think it's a case of communication and then it links back to pleasure as well like ultimately like we said before sex is supposed to be sort of fun and enjoyable for everyone involved and as much as being necessary for consent to make sure that everyone feels comfortable communication is necessary to make sure that it feels good for everyone involved as well Um, yeah definitely and I think it's really important something you touched on there is that you don't have to physically say no for it Mm. to be a no and I think that's like a really big thing that's been challenged um I've seen actually some really good um tv for for like young people where um consent has very clearly like they very clearly made a point um either consent has very clearly not been given um Mm. and they're making that point and that point will get made like you know throughout um, a series or they're very clearly doing consent like the one of the best examples I can think of it as something recently I've watched and I don't know if you've seen it is um, the normal people adaptation Sally Rooney's and um, there's a scene where um, for those who haven't seen it I'm not going to name the names of the characters in case it ruins it but two characters a boy and a girl and they're going to have heterosexual sex and it's the girl's first time but the boy very clearly gets her consent um you know and sort of says we can stop at any time if you feel uncomfortable and throughout it sort of like is this okay are you okay um and I think it's it kind of comes down to that because I've had difficult conversations with people around consent and they're saying oh well what do you want boys to do get a girl to sign a contract before anything and I'm like well no because that actually doesn't even help the situation because just because as a girl I sign a contract saying yep I'm happy to have sex with you right now something might happen during the process that I'm not comfortable with that I'm like oh actually that doesn't feel good can you not do that and then they're going to wave their contract around say oh but you sign this so yeah and that's something that comes up in in class sometimes I've had a couple of comments like that about the thing and and I guess like the, the point that I try to make in response to that is that like sex between two people in in that kind of situation isn't like a transactional thing like it should be something mm. that's kind of fun and enjoyable like we said before um and also what you said about it being kind of a case that a person can change their mind like we always stress that that idea of it being a contract signing thing is is so redundant because someone might decide they're not comfortable or they might decide that they want to try something else and then they need to kind of talk again about that specific type of sex so that's something else that we talk about as well like Mm -hmm. being able to be specific about what someone does and doesn't want to do like they might be happy to have penis and vagina sex they might not be happy to have anal sex like Mm -hmm. being able to talk specifically about the different types of sex is important for consent as well and I think that again brings it back to like the inclusivity thing and making sure that when we're talking about sex and consent we're not only talking about one type of sex we're trying to be kind of specific about the different types that exist and being able to communicate about those yeah it's just about um sort of like like you said communication and reading behavior and I do think 
that it is slowly changing. And I've just seen also another program I've thought of is literally sex education on Netflix is brilliant for that. And having, you know, making sure those conversations come to light and, yeah, just because someone says yes doesn't mean that they can't stop or put an end to it at any time. Or if you're doing something and, you know, a person's sort of squirming or, you know, they, they look like they're a bit in pain, just ask because maybe they don't feel because of the way they've been societally conditioned. Maybe they don't feel that they can say no or stop or I don't like that. Um, and these are the sort of things that we need to communicate. And I think something that I grew up with was that you know, you didn't want to upset the other person. There was sort of like a fear a lot of the time of, oh, if I say um, I don't like that or it doesn't feel good, then they're going to be upset and they're going to be annoyed. And I think especially in young people, teenagers, school age, like a worry that something, you know, everyone will find out. Is that still something that you think young people sort of have concerns over that sort of being talked about? (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely something that we talk about. I mean, when we do workshops on consent, we we talk specifically about that, actually, and talk about how it's probably more likely in the first instance that if someone isn't comfortable, they're going to say something like, um, I'm, I'm tired or maybe later or mm-hmm. I'm on my period, rather than saying, like, I don't want to stop, that doesn't feel good or I'm not comfortable right now. Um, and if someone does does feel like they can communicate in such a clear way that's great but I think it's important for everyone really to recognize that humans don't often communicate like that and and we can have a tendency to try to be polite and to try to avoid confrontation and so in class we we unpick those different ways of kind of implicitly saying no and then we talk about why someone might say that and the things that you mentioned always come up like someone might not want to offend the other person or they might be worried that they're risking jeopardizing the relationship with them if they say a certain thing, or they might be worried that the person will get angry. Um, and, and we talk about all those things, not to suggest that that's not how someone should communicate, but really to suggest that we need to be capable of interpreting all of those different phrases as no, because that's what they mean, even if they're kind of slightly veiled in politeness. Um, we all understand that that's what they mean. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, what you said then in in life generally, we're not actually that comfortable saying no. And I think, you know, even down to silly things like when you make dinner for someone and if they have a mouthful of it and they just don't feel like they can say, oh, it's a bit too spicy or I don't really like it or, you know, there's so many, uh, God, so many layers of it. And I think particularly um, as someone who is a woman growing up, you know, we are taught, like I said at the beginning, to to people please and we don't want to, you know, we want to be good girls and we don't want to upset other people's feelings. And so we do then value other people's feelings in general above our own. And that's why the patriarchal narrative can be so damaging because then when it comes to body autonomy and, you know, sexual experiences, you've been so conditioned to think about the other person and prioritize them that you then do it in a situation that can leave you vulnerable it can leave you in a dangerous situation in a compromised situation um yeah I think it's just so important to have these conversations definitely and I think what what's just been mentioned about kind of these issues being applicable to real life in general is is really important as well like when we do these workshops we we talk overtly about sexual consent when we're with 
usually sort of year nine plus but when we're with younger students maybe like 11 or 12 year olds um, and we're talking about consent and healthy relationships we tend to use examples that are more to do with sort of day-to-day -day life like a stranger touches your hair like is that consensual or like your friend tickles you is that consensual and elicit these ideas from them about basically it only being consensual if you've said that it's okay and like clearly expressed that you're comfortable with it um, and trying to embed those ideas about consent when when children are quite young I think is really important like consent isn't exclusively a sex related issue like it it links to a lot of different day-to-day -day experiences as well I remember I can't remember if this is an article I've read by someone or if it was someone I heard on a podcast but you know when you you hear something and it really sticks with you and you don't think about it and it was um, a woman talking about her child um, and she was saying that she you know when children are really young you're sort of um quite often because of our culture and our society um expected to hug people and kiss people a lot and um mm -hmm. obviously there's an age that some kids not all kids get to where they don't really want to do that anymore um and sometimes it can be forced upon you because it looks rude or you know oh no this this is your grandma you're going to kiss her or you, you know and she was basically saying how um she calls people out now when her child doesn't want to engage in in that so if she's i don't know going to a relative's house and um oh come give me a hug and a kiss if her child says no she leaves it at no because she was mm. saying how like this is how this is the start of them learning consent and just Definitely. because if i say to them oh no you have to do that then that's going to be ingrained in them and they're going to think that's how it's been played. It's just, you know, when you've never really thought of something and she was talking about like a really small child again, I, I wish I could remember who it was, but that really stuck with me. Yeah. And I think that's something that we talk about in those younger years, consent workshops as well. Like we have an example that's something like, um, you've like, you've just had a fight with your parent and, um, you've gone upstairs and they come in and give you a hug, like, um, is that consent or something like that and again it boils down to like whether or not you you want that hug like if it's something that's gonna off, often students will initially be like but if, but you like you have to hug them because it's your family blah blah blah, blah. but then they tend to sort of unpack it a little bit more and think about how in some cases just because it's a relative doesn't necessarily mean that you want that touch or that you feel comfortable doing that and if it's something that you do feel comfortable with and that makes you feel better and makes you feel safe and so on then that's absolutely great and that's kind of a perfect example of like good touching and and kind of consent and so on but if it's not then like you said it's it should be fine for children to say so yeah exactly and it's funny because when you were saying oh but it's a relative so it's okay or like oh i i have to do that what about when that five-year-old is then 15 and they're in a sexual um scenario with another person that is their boyfriend girlfriend partner and they don't really want to have sex but they think oh but i have to like it all kind of comes full circle like yeah, you said exactly. it starts young and yeah i think it's something really important to talk about um and consent is you know we often associate consent like you said with sex and relationships but it goes beyond that and sort of practicing good consent generally in life helps place boundaries I guess that's something that I Definitely. feel like I never was talked about boundaries 
Um, one thing that I just did want to talk about before we wrap up was I'm really interested. I know you talk about porn and it's something that you talk about in workshops. And I did a podcast episode, like I said, um, just all about vaginas and, um, the midwife who came on talked a lot about porn and how she thinks, you know, our image of what a perfect vagina is comes from porn. And that's why mm -hmm. therefore a lot of people with vaginas then get hangups and there's a stigma around what it should and shouldn't look like because you sort of see one type of vagina in porn. And although in porn you can see pretty much any type of sex, all types of sex, um, is it something that you think is still quite damaging to young people when they're exposed to it at a really young age? Or how do you think it impacts what young people see sex as or what they see as um, accessible in sex? Yeah, so, so I wouldn't say it's damaging. Um, there isn't really much kind of empirical evidence to suggest that it's sort of harmful. Um, and we, we tend to go from a sort of evidence-based sex positive perspective, like I said before, but there definitely are issues in the types of bodies and sex that we might see in mainstream porn, which are reflective of broader societal issues around kind of racist tropes and misogyny and so on. Mm. So when we teach about porn, um, we start off by stressing that like it's kind of a non-judgmental space and that if people have seen porn then it's okay and it's not their fault and it's not something they have to be ashamed of um we really want to kind of reduce any stigma around that but at the same time encourage kind of i guess a critical lens on what they may see um so what we do is try to think about the differences between bodies and sex that we might see in mainstream porn versus what we might see in reality um, and there are some things which aren't which aren't perfect in either like we've touched on the kind of orgasm gap earlier which is something that exists in porn and in real life yeah <laughs> um but but also like we we tend to talk about how you know you might not see pubic hair in porn and you probably will see it in real life and it might be that like at the end of having sex, someone needs to go and have a wee and you probably won't see that in porn, but you probably will in real life and that kind of thing. And trying to unpick the differences, I guess, and not, not associating any stigma with porn in and of itself, but looking at how there are certain societal issues that manifest in the porn that we see and trying to think about those critically and trying to kind of, to some extent, separate them from the way that we perceive our bodies and sex in real day-to-day -day life. Um, so yeah, I guess it's more about that sort of criticality and that links to what I was saying at the start about how we try to make sure that the work we do has a sort of social justice angle to it as well. So mm. thinking about those sort of racist stereotypes that we might see in porn or the misogyny that we might see in porn um, and trying to think about how those issues aren't unique to porn. Like we see them in porn, but they're not created by porn. So we try to unpack that a little bit as well. Yeah, it's actually really refreshing to hear you say, um, because obviously I automatically sort of said, oh, is it damaging? And I think that's because maybe this is like a conversation that's changing because I think when I was younger as well, it was sort of like, don't let kids watch porn. They like, it will teach them <laughs> bad things about sex and um, kids are going to watch porn. <laughs> like people are going to watch porn. There's no point sort of trying to, it's like the sex conversation in general. There's no point preaching about, um, you know, 
abstinence because it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, people are going to have sex if they want to have sex. People are going to watch porn if they want to watch porn. But just that understanding. And I think also just young people understanding that people who make porn are professional um, actors and sex workers. So, you know, they are paid to, they're not always going to be receiving pleasure, but they will act that. Um, and I know that there's a lot of concern around porn and um, sort of rape culture. And it's actually quite refreshing to hear you say that, you know, your take is sex positive and you're going to watch porn, but let's unpick the nuances of porn and let's remind ourselves mm -hmm. of these things. Um, and I think I remember, yeah, around about the time I was at school was when like internet was becoming a thing you could kind of get on your phones and there was this huge concern of like the accessibility to porn but I think that's why what you do and what good sex and relationship education is so important because if young people have that then there won't be an issue around the other things that we've talked about porn as well. Yeah definitely and I think what you said about kind of challenging any form of abstinence-based sex education is really important as well like we've come reasonably far in the last 20 years or so in terms of I think fairly broadly collectively agreeing that abstinence-based sex ed isn't effective when it comes to kind of physical sex but I think thinking about it in a digital sphere we still have some way to go so um yeah like you said promoting abstinence from porn is unlikely to be effective and the same applies to other kind of digital sex related issues like sending nudes and so on um i think we still have a culture around that that can be quite victim blaming around mm. young people who send nudes and then the recipient goes on to non-consensually share them around with other people and i think still societally we have a, an idea that the fault lies in the person who initially sent the picture of themselves rather than it lying in the person who violated their trust and shared it with other people. So yeah, I guess in a broader digital sense, we still have some way to go in kind of changing the way that we view that um, in, in the online context, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully we're getting there. Yeah. And I think that comes back into your like, um, feminist approach and your inclusivity approach because it's about equality because the sort of things you were talking about then um and victim blaming i do feel like that is a larger issue within the heterosexual sphere that women experience and girls experience um like that victim blaming culture with regards to rape or even just um sending pictures um slut shaming when i was at school and i think still now is something that was you know that girls experience as an experience of girls mm. um and changing that narrative altogether and you know girls can be as promiscuous yeah. as boys and that's fine we, definitely and we just see different iterations of that as time goes on like it, it may have been 20 years ago that there was slut shaming in terms of how many sexual partners a person had had and now it's now it's occurring when girls send nudes and it's just kind of I guess existing in different spaces but it's still it's still definitely an issue yeah um but I think overall what you do is great and I really wish that it was something that I could have experienced when I was younger <laughs> having sex flame come in and actually teach me well 
about my body and about sex in a way that's not just biology, like I've said multiple times. Where can people find you and how can people get involved? You know, if people are listening to this and they're thinking, I want to talk to Sexplain, or I know you've kind of focused around workshops, but you're also on social media. Where can people find you? Yeah, so we have a website. Um, so you can find us on our website and there's contact information on there, um, and emails and phone numbers that you can use to contact us. We also have Twitter and Instagram, which is at Sexplain UK. Our Instagram's fairly active. So if anyone wanted to DM us on there, then um, someone will get back to them um, fairly quickly. Uh, yeah, I think they're probably the best ports of call. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Sophie. And I'll put everything in the show notes and links to you so that people can find you easily. And I think the work you do is great and I'm a huge advocate of it. I think this will be a really good conversation for a lot of people. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you. I loved the discussions in this episode. I think it's so important that we break down the stigmas of SRE. And as a society, we just need to get more comfortable talking about sex in general. I'm a really big advocate of the work Sexplain do and so grateful to Sophie for coming on the podcast to chat about their work. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode useful, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It really does go a long way and I'd be super grateful. You can follow us on Instagram at discuss underscore podcast to keep the conversation going or show your support by sharing the podcast with a friend who you think might enjoy it too. Thanks again and I hope you all have a great day. Bye!